everyone, and welcome to the Australian Herpticulture Podcast. I'm your host, Jason. And I'm your co-host, Luke. Yep. Bit of a delay going on there, Luke. Really? Bit of a storm coming through my end, I think, so... Oh, well. Anyway, we might just introduce the guest straight away. What do you reckon? Sounds good to me, mate. Go for it. Well, anyway, we've got on Daniel Natouche. How you going, mate? Yeah, good, thank you. I'm, that's so, fine. And, I'm, and I'm being joined. You're going to just, sorry, excuse me. No, that's fine. I've got kids too, so it's all good. <laughs> no, you're all right, mate. Why don't you tell everyone you're going to use, Luke? Well, I don't want to count my, my chickens before they hatch too badly, but uh, it must be a night for it. I'm very glad that Daniel's on here tonight. Uh, and uh, I've come home to a female green sitting on a clutch of eggs, so I'm incredibly stoked. Yeah, that's awesome. And so sorry about that, folks. Yeah, so I'm I'm Dan Nartouche, and obviously because you had me on the call, that's why you've come home to a clutch of green python eggs tonight. So I'm I'm going to take that all as my uh, <laughs> my influence. Lovely to meet you, and, and thanks very much for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, <laughs> Luke's laughing away. It's all good luck. It must be. <laughs> must be, mate. It must be. The pleasure's so. all ours for, for you down here, mate. It's, yeah, thanks so much for jumping on. No worries. So um, what got you into uh, reptiles or wildlife in particular, mate? Anything particular? Yeah, the, the, the story is is fairly cliche, like most of us, and no doubt, no doubt you guys as well. I was one of those kids that was running around in the scrub catching at first skinks and then water dragons and then snakes and then you know how it sort of evolves into and suddenly you're wrangling taipans and cape york type thing um and yeah I, I suppose a defining moment was at age 11 when i visited my brother who was living in canada and i'm not sure if you know you, you must have seen discovery channel and national geographic where they have dens of garter snakes so a small yeah. colubrid snake that because it gets very cold over there, they um, den together in the winter and then they come out in spring in these writhing balls of thousands of snakes. And I didn't come across one of those really impressive ones that you see in the in the docos, but I came across a small one on Vancouver Island and able being able to just pick up, you know, 50 snakes in your hand at once and none of them biting you. And I was hooked since then and... and since that point until this point now, every adventure that I've had has, has had some sort of snaky influence and I've just, yeah, I've been hooked, hooked since then. So were you born in Australia or? I was born born in New Zealand, um, yeah. but obviously with <laughs> the few nations on earth with no snakes, I rapidly had to jump the ditch and um, from age, I guess about 11 or 12, started spending a lot of time in Cape York Peninsula. Um, in the sort of country where, where green pythons are, are found on, on cattle stations or formerly what were cattle stations, most of which are national parks now. And, um, yeah, finding from age sort of 13, 14, finding green pythons in places that folks had never, didn't know they knew, know they occurred. And, yeah, that, that, obviously that species is, is something pretty special. And so, yeah, that, that particular interest and in that, phenomenal landscape which is Cape York really really blossomed from there I went to boarding yeah. school in New Zealand but most of my holidays were spent running around in the scrub in, in North Queensland yeah I'm pretty sure most Australians call New Zealanders Australians anyway so <laughs> <laughs> much of a much less but um what 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not too far. It's pretty much a stone's throw across the pond. So. Except, except when COVID comes and they're like, leave the fuck off back to New Zealand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so are you still living in Australia now? or? Yeah, I'm based in Cairns. Um, yep. I was stuck in France for two years. We made the decision to move there like, like idiots just before. Well, who can predict? But we moved there yeah, exactly. before COVID hit and have basically yep. been in lockdown um, with two small kids, one of which you just saw in a, in, a, in a small French house for the last two years. So very, very happy to be back home in Oz and, and in, in the tropics. Yeah, it's a beautiful spot. I can't wait to get up there. So, But um, what kind of led you into your studies with um, snakes in particular or was it something else that kind of led you down that path? No, again, fairly cliché. Um, Steve and Mark O'Shea, Jeff Corr and all those dorks that we used to see on, uh, or legend slash dorks that we used to see on, on Discovery Channel and Nat Geo and so on. Um, what kid doesn't want to do that? And I was like, okay, I want to do that. What do I have to do? And, you know, you go to your careers advisor at school or whatever, and they're like, well, you could become a zoologist. And I was like, well, I don't really give a crap about academia, but okay, what do I have to do? Well, you need to do maths and chemistry and biology and physics. And I was like, oh, screw it. I'll, I'll do that. Fine. And um, and so did all those those subjects. Didn't really, you know, was not into biology of the cell. When I went to university, it was all just an excuse to get back out, bush and catch snakes. But then over time, as, as one matures, I really did become interested in, in some of those burning questions, whether they be ecological such as, you know, what, what does a snake do in its day-to-day? You know, green pythons are nice to see, but what do they actually do in the forest? Or an evolutionary question, why the hell are they born red and yellow and then change colour to green? That's such a fascinating question. And, and then, so really that, that interest in reptiles and snakes did blossom into a far more formal um, curiosity about the natural world, really, and when you when you understand that the training that, that science can provide you and sort of, you know, experimental design and critical thinking such that you can actually answer those questions, questions that have never been answered by humankind before, real groundbreaking original research. It's it's a really cool experience and, and process that I, that I fell in love with as much as I had with the animals. So most of your studies have been based predominantly around scrubbies and green tree pythons, is that correct? Or have you done a little bit more broader? Um, um, well, my, my, to give you a sort of chronology, my, my master's was on, um, what are they called, green pythons um, in northern Australia. And then, as, as you, I'm sure, know, Australia only has a yellow juvenile morph. I knew about the red morph, and so I was like, oh, that's really interesting. At this point, I'm into these questions about colour and the evolutionary significance of colour. So I decided to take a trip to New Guinea um, with a bunch of mates and went there and and came across a massive wildlife trade. And in in Papuan pythons and Boland's pythons, green pythons, white-lipped pythons, carpet pythons, you name it, they were trading it. And so as as a biologist... You know, you walk, snakes are not the sort of animals that you find in the bush at the best of times. You kind of got to bust your ass to find one red belly or one green python. It has to be the right time of year and the moon kind of needs to be good. And, you you know, everyone listening probably has similar experiences. And, And the ability to turn up 
into a little village in New Guinea and the night before people have collected a hundred snakes that would take you a year to collect that same sort of sample size as a, as a biologist to get that many animals to answer these ecological and evolutionary questions was a, was a massive thing. And so we spent another two years in New Guinea just studying everything. So I, I've you know, worked on white-lipped pythons, all those species I mentioned earlier, Boland's pythons, yeah. white-lipped pythons, carpets in New Guinea, obviously the greens and so on. And then I came back to, you know, I, I run a, a consultancy that does wildlife management type stuff, so I've been running around the world a little bit and then, then came back to Cape York and did a PhD that was originally on fire ecology or at least meant yeah. to be. In the end, it wasn't. I ended up blowing a bit of smoke up some snake nostrils and that was about it. Um, it really morphed into a, a broad-scale community ecology study. So I, I had about 12 species of snake that I studied. Um, and for example, I radio-tracked black-headed pythons and scrub pythons, about 28 scrub pythons I radio-tracked. I caught about 600 of them over the wow. course of the, the study. Several hundred spotted pythons, carpet pythons, water pythons, um, big mark recaptures. So lots of slaty grey snakes, lots of boiga, uh, the brown tree snake, brown-headed snakes, death adders. So a, a range of elapids, colubrids, and pythons that make you know the study is no great shakes necessarily. It's just that no one's really done a lot of work in that part of the world, and you can. If you're willing to invest the time, you can get quite good samples and and say some fairly neat things about species that folks know nothing about. So yeah, a fairly a fairly diverse range of, of taxa that I've worked on, and I've also done a lot of work through my professional career on on reticulated pythons and blood pythons and African rock pythons, Burmese pythons, etc., um, and a whole bunch of other you know, cobras and rat snakes and da da da. So it's a fairly, yeah. it's a fairly di- diverse, you know, range of taxa at this point that I'm, I'm working on frequently. Yeah. So was it on that first trip when you went to Papua New Guinea that you thought that there might be possible different species between the green tree pythons or was it later on? I mean, I, I would love to claim credit for that, but I won't. So in 2003, actually, a... Uh, uh, a brilliant lady called Leslie Rawlings, who did a PhD with it in South Australia with a guy called Steve Donellan, published yep. a paper looking at a, a fairly small amount of data from the mitochondrial genome and a single gene, um, the cytochrome B gene, that, that absolutely suggested that there was deep evolutionary divergence between the North and the South. Obviously, yep. all your Maxwell what's it called, complete chondro and your Kibben Wiseman yeah. and your, all those jokers, you know, the, the pet trade guys, you guys, you can see the difference. It's, yeah. it's, it's, if you've seen a lot of animals, it's night and day. And, you know, at this point I've seen a, a hell of a lot of animals, you know, that I've pulled out of the forest myself, about 1,500 at this point from all over the species range and then a whole bunch of museum specimens and so on. And when you see a lot of them, you go, ah, the differences are subtle, but they're, they're, they're different there. differences. At the end yep. of the day, I'm not one of these 
splitter type people. I wouldn't really, I don't know, you know, they're green snakes that sit in the forest eating rats at the end of the day. Yep. And so splitting them up was a bit like, mm, do you want to? Um, you don't want to, you know, you don't, <laughs> I was going to say, you don't want to go full hoser. I was going <laughs> to. I thought I better not say that because I'll probably get a, a, an email from the dude saying, screw you, Dan. But, um, um, and so, so, but when you run the genetics, you do the, you know, we, we sequenced uh, the next generation sequencing of a whole bunch of nuclear loci and the entire mitochondrial genome and, yeah, the DNA don't lie. And yeah. they are absolutely different species. Those Azuria, Azuria, Azuria pulcher, Azuria utaraensis that we describe are probably different species too. It's just to be conservative, you know, like I said, I don't like to split for the sake of it. I would prefer someone goes into those areas of you know, where we don't have as many um, data points and to collect more data and to really button it down. Um, but I suspect, yeah, they are all separate taxa as far as the, the genetic divergence is concerned. Yeah. Um, so when with the naming, because it was Chondropython, they were in Chondropython first, weren't they? So um, chondri- I'd have to I'd have to look back. It's been a while since I, well, I wrote the paper a while ago. But um, I want to say they were in Python first. So they a guy okay, called yeah. Schlegel named Virtus from the Aru Islands, so a true yeah. Virtus, um, as Python Virtus. And then about a year later, because this was back in the 18 whatevers when yeah. you, couldn't, you couldn't go on Google Scholar and be like, oh, that no, <laughs> so, so some Dutch, I think he's Dutch, um, or maybe he was, he was German, came back from Maru Islands, um, described one. Another German guy, Meyer, um, described Chondropython Azuria from Biak. And okay. so... Chondropython became the name um, for a long while because people just sort of latched onto it because they considered that there were significant differences. And then a guy called Arnold Kluge um, in 1993 did a, a morphometric analysis, so a, a morphologue looking at the skull, um, arrangement of the teeth in the skull, the maxilla, all these different things, and concluded that, no, actually, these things were, were more realia. But by that point, yeah. that pretty funky name of Condro Python had well and truly stuck. Yeah, I think it's still stuck a little bit in the US too. They still call them Condro Python. So. Yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah. So what kind of, with the with the green pythons, what kind of other studies have you done on them? Or is that kind of basically the majority of the studies you've done with the green pythons? I think I've basically published everything that uh, there's some bit of habitat stuff, but the habitat stuff's a bit wanky, to be honest. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the color stuff, um, the diff, you know, the I think there's about five, maybe seven papers that I've written now out on green pythons distribution, conservation status, significance of the ontogenetic color change, diet geographic variation and morphology, then there's the splitting species one, then there's one about the significance of why the polymorphism between red and, and juveniles, red and, uh, sorry, yellow juveniles and what's maintaining it. Um, and that's about all, all the data I've, I've got in me, I think. 
So more data than probably anyone else. <laughs> yeah, man, so it's been a lot, of, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears busting my ass in the, in the New Guinea scrub and in the Australian scrub. So oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. So with with the color change, what's what was the reasoning behind? I did read the paper a while when it first came out, but a lot of that scientific literature kind of just goes over my head. I'm more of a novice, I wouldn't say novice keeper, I'm more of a keeper per se than a, a scientist. So what was, do you know, what was the reasoning behind the... So, so, basically, those colors? yeah, the, the prevailing thinking, and science science does its best, but it's not always right, so someone could come out and, and prove us all wrong and that would be great too. Um, but the prevailing thinking is that juvenile green pythons are, let's, let's talk about the yellow the yellow phase or the yellow morph yep. specifically, because that's what we have most data for. They they occur in edge habitats. You don't really find them in the deep, dark, closed canopy rainforest. Um, yep. You f- you do find them in those areas if there's a tree fall gap. So you can be in the middle of the rainforest, and if a tree has fallen down, that's where you'll find your juveniles. You won't find them back in the closed canopy stuff. If you have a road that goes to an area, people. There were a lot of luck just driving along that Portland Roads Road through Gordon's Creek and Iron Range there, chucking a spotlight out the window. It's a great spot to see juveniles, the yellow juveniles, because they favour those habitats. The reason being that they hunt during the day for heliothermic for uh, for uh, small lizards. They, they almost exclusively eat lizards. They may eat frogs, but my diet data, which was, which was fairly robust, you know, we pulled a couple of gooey things out that could have very well been frogs, but it was certainly not a majority of, of prey items. And so they're eating lizards, diurnal skinks, basically, that come out during the day in these sun-dappled areas because it's not closed canopy. The sun's hitting the ground, lots of yellow dried leaves, lots of bit of shade hair, bit of sun hair, breaking up the pattern, and that camouflage of yellow is optimally cryptic or is i.e. most camouflaged in those habitats. The animals at that stage, their head sizes are too small to take a mammal. So a, a malamese or a, a rat, ratus leucopus, the cape built rat. And so they go through their life eating as a yellow juvenile in these edge habitats, eating small skinks. And then they reach a point where suddenly their head size is large enough that they can physically ingest a rodent. And what happens is, one, they change colour, one, they start eating rodents, and two, they move out of those edge habitats into the big, deeper, darker, closed canopy rainforest areas where studies by a, a guy named Dave Wilson have shown that in those habitats, the adults are the most cryptic or most camouflaged um, in that, as in the green of the adults blends in best with those habitats. So it's essentially a, it's niche partitioning um, related to to several things that, that correlate. It's not related to sex changes in sexual maturity or sexual selection or anything like that. It's you know, I, th- I think it is camouflage, and also I suspect there's a bit of temperature thing going on. I mean, the we we know. I mean. I can't claim too much credit for this, but uh, another keeper actually has has done a few studies and the rate at which the green, red and yellow juveniles heat up in the sun is very different. So there may also be a thermoregulatory 
um, component to that as well. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that actually makes sense when you explain it like that. But so yeah, I noticed in in the US, you see a lot of you also see a lot of like the maroon color babies. Did you ever see any of those? in the wild at all yeah so they do actually occur naturally as well i thought it might have been something to do with maybe the crossing of no no they, they, they basically they occur throughout all, all of the populations of azuria have them yep. except for islands in raja Ampat. so if you think of new guinea looking at the map on the far left you've got what they call the bird's head you've heard of a sarong animal sarong yep. animals are on the very western edge of what we call the bird's head or the Vogelkop Peninsula. And then in there is a set of islands. You may have heard of Kofiao, Wagio, Salawati, Misal, Batanta. On those islands, I don't believe a red juvenile has ever, ever, ever come across. And it's yeah. it's probably just losing the red morph through founder effects, you know, during periods of glaciation and sea level rise and contraction. Um, they got cut off and they just lost the red morph. But otherwise, you know, you'll get in, in Sarong, in Manakwari, in the Bomberai Peninsula, through Nabere, the Mambarama River Basin, Jayapura, Yapin, Numfor, Biak, and then all the north coast of um, Papua New Guinea, from Venemo all the way down to Ley, you will find red juveniles. The proportions of which they occur, you know, relative how many percentage of red versus yellow, does seem to be slightly different um, depending on where you are, but in most places it's broadly 50-50. Yep. So the famous Kofi owl, the yellow ones you, you saw quite a bit in America, so you, you cook a little bit of smoke. Are they actually yellow in the wild over there or is it kind of just maybe the odd few individuals that were yellow when they collected them or were yeah, they even from Kofi owl? Yeah, it's a, I spent quite a bit of time on Kofi owl. Um, yep. I never found a green python in the wild. I know other people have, as in I know walked through the bush and, you know, there was one hunting, like I'm able to find them in other places. I'm, yep. I'm perhaps a bit big-headed, but I like to think that I'm reasonably adept or good at finding greens in, in places where they occur. And so I concluded that, shit, this place has been hammered quite badly, given because, yep. you know, they, they were about 120 bucks to the villager which is a hell of a lot of money, whereas your average green python might be worth five bucks to the villager if it's a sarong or something. And so I think, yes, yellow animals or animals that did retain yellow came off that island. They'd, and I, I did see a lot of animals on Kofiao, but they were already in bags collected by local people. You know, I'd go yeah. out and then another guy would go out, he'd find one, I wouldn't, and then we'd see. I think I saw about 25 in total. Every single one of them was green, but yeah. they were a very washed out green. You know, they, they weren't like that beautiful emerald bright wrong or Aussie thing. They were a, like a real pastel, you know, almost like they really want to be yellow, but not quite. They're like, Please. yeah, but didn't quite yeah. make it. And, and it's possible that, you know, when they go through a hormonal event during pregnancy that they, they do go full yellow, I know. In some of the breeding farms there, where they brought in, you know, washed out green individuals, they did become yellow later. Um, so yeah, I think there's definitely something to it. Also, this island phenomenon. I've been to other islands. I won't name them just because collection yeah. is, is a thing. But other islands where azuria occur, where 
the yellow juveniles keep their their yellow coloration well into adulthood. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's not just Kofiar where it occurs, but the type of yellow is a bit different. It's a bit of a darker yellow, and it's, in my opinion, not quite as beautiful as some of those Kofiar, you know, those canary yellow Kofiars that you see. But, yeah, I think things happen on, on small islands, which are a bit strange, and I, I think that's basically what happens. Kofiar is not a, not a big place. Yeah, okay. So with the collecting of the green pythons, is that something that's kind of sustainable for the, the amount of green tree pythons that are in the wild or is it something that might not necessarily be as sustainable that, you know, on the, yeah. obviously on the smaller islands it's not, but, um, you know, on the larger ones? Yeah, I mean, on, on, the, New, on the New Guinea mainland, absolutely, I believe it's sustainable. Um, greens yeah. in the right habitat, you know, it's a toss-up between brown tree snakes and green pythons in yep. terms of most common snake, in my opinion. And maybe, you know, slaty greys and the various different types of steganotas are quite common too. But on small islands like Kofiao, where you have a significant demand because there is that, you know, stamp collector or rarity mentality, yes, I do believe they've been hit pretty hard and the, yep. the uptake is probably unsustainable. As in they're not probably being extirpated. They're, they still occur there. They're not being driven to extinction. I know people that have gone back and found them, but certainly the offtake couldn't be sustained at the level it was taking place at indefinitely. Um, yep. yeah, they're basically, they are well depleted. You, you could argue that they've reached commercial extinction which means yes. it's no longer economic for guys to go bust their ass looking for the last remaining individuals because it's yes. just it's too much too much effort. But broadly, yes, I do think that the harvest across New Guinea is, is sustainable. I mean, yeah. it's a giant, giant land mass and it's, it's so intact relative to so many other places. Ultimately, it will be habitat loss and conversion to you know, monocultures of whatever it may be and intensive agriculture that will screw green pythons. It's, it's not really going to be collection. Yeah. Um, well, so with the – because they've got the, the breeding farms over there, um, is that kind of also helping probably oh, – maybe not so much because they're, like you are saying, the population is quite large over there, but the breeding farms kind of aiding in conser conserving them a little bit or is that kind of – I mean, I never... not, not really. I mean, I suppose my caveat will be when I was spending a lot of time in those breeding farms was 12 years ago. So a lot yeah. happened in that time. Um, I'm still friends with a bunch of those guys still. Yeah. They're still taking greens from the wild and pretending yeah. I read them just because greens are everywhere. And yeah. why, why not? Like why? It's like asking us, hey, we want you to, go to all the expense of breeding and copulating and whatever rabbits or sparrows or some other common as shit Australian species for people that, you know, are just going, why would we? They're freaking yeah, everywhere. They're everywhere. In the bush, we know it's sustainable. People can earn a livelihood benefit. Often they don't have a cash income. We want to assist them and help them. Because Indonesia, you know, one of the nice, you know, nicest groups of people on earth and, and there really is that camaraderie and family, even among folks that don't know one another and, and wanting to uplift other people within the population. And so 
you know, that they do it as sort of a social good if they can if they can help local people out through a harvest. Yeah, at the end of the day, they're saying, you know, yes, we bred these, which is technically in contravention of Indonesian law, in contravention of CITES and a number of different things. But is it a, it's a compliance problem. It's not a conservation problem. And so, so long, long story short is, is no, I don't think they're having any, any conservation benefit. Um, yep. Except where the illegal trade from the wild in some places like Kofiao is actually incentivizing people to keep the forests intact. So the yes, money yeah. they make, not just from green pythons, but the money they make from the, the trade and sale for pets of a broad range of reptile species um, actually means people have gone, oh, shit, we're not going to chop all this down and grow chocolate or um, coconuts or whatever it may be. We're going to keep the forest intact because we know the green pythons and the scrubs and the candoia and the whatever it may be require that habitat. We make a lot yep. of money from them, so we're going to keep it there, which is so ironic because what a wonderful conservation success story that an illegal trade is generated. And yeah, so exactly. My, my, my recommendations for a long time to the Indonesian government and the industry have been legalise your harvests, manage it, monitor it, you'll know how many individuals are coming out, put a conservation levy on it, you know how they gag for this stuff in the US. Imagine if you could get a, a locality specific with the GPS coordinate from the exact area that it came from. People would pay an amount over and above, I believe, for that sort of um, that sort of service and that sort of knowledge of where their, their animal came from. And those funds could be put back into rehabilitation of habitats, management, conservation, etc. But at this stage, no, nothing's changed and they're still just coming out of the wild like normal. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. I think that's the biggest issue with the, you know, a lot of governments is it takes a, a long time for anything to come into effect if it comes into effect at all. So, um, when you were out studying, did you come across any actual, um, any nesting sites or anything along those lines? Like where are they laying their eggs or are they just generally laying them on the floor in leaf litter or? So I've, I've found nest of eggs in a hollow log yep. in Northern Australia. I have found day-old juveniles all together with a fresh umbilical suture in a tree fall gap with lots of wait a while and I spent days crawling around underneath putting, you know, plumber's cameras up logs and somewhere in that area there was a nest because these, yep. things, these things were fresh as that. And... Yep. Um, but I didn't find it. But it was in there somewhere. So I, and, and there were no tall trees. It was, these animals are far too small to have, you know, come down out of a tree hollow. And they were nesting somewhere on the ground or within a hollow log, probably just yep. in a clump of leaves on the ground, to be honest. In New Guinea, I was taken to two, maybe three animals on Biak that were wrapped around eggs, and they were on the ground just in ferns, like... In, in or at least on Biak, not so much other places, but on Biak, large areas are just shitty, almost like bracken fern. You know, in southern yep. Australia, you get bracken, and if you get a, a, a paddock that hasn't had stock in it for a while, you know, say the south coast of New South Wales or somewhere, or even around Sydney, you get all that brackeny fern type stuff. It's not quite the same, but it's a bit like a hard fern, 
and they were just nestled down in the dry stuff um, you know, in that. And the locals knew where they were, you know, didn't disturb them and didn't, didn't count the eggs or anything. Um, yeah. And yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of pretty much anywhere, really. Where it's anywhere kind, of, so it's kind of like, you know, with a lot of snakes, it's like you put yeah. radio transmitters in them and you like track them for years and you're thinking, oh, great, I'm going to find out all these new insights. And then you finish a study and you're like, yep, they basically were doing exactly what I thought they'd do. I didn't really yeah. learn much at all. I mean, I've, I got to quantify and um, get great data points, but in reality, what I assumed was happening is exactly what's happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is a, is a bit gutting, but at the same time, it's like, oh, it's nice to, it's nice to corroborate you know, your understanding. Yeah, that's right. Um, what's it actually like herping, so to speak, in New Guinea, Papua New Guinea and Indonesia and I mean, pretty, did you have any, like, obviously, because the, some of the countries are a bit in turmoil there. Um, you know, so I saw, I saw, you know, OPM walked out of, walked out of the bush right in front of us and opened fire and shot and killed women and children right there in front of us. I saw the military, Indonesian military, open fire and kill people in a peaceful protest. Um, I saw two in the highlands to clan the Ani and the Dani go at each other with bows and arrows because the the mobile phone ringtone of a guy in one kind of tribe offended someone else in the other tribe. So they went to war over it. Now these are guys in lap laps and penis like penis goods, those, you know, root tubers. They like you with little little bows and arrows and they yet they've got mobile phones. At least they did then. They probably got Lamborghinis now, and um, yeah. So, so yeah, you, you see, you see some incredible stuff. Herping there, ninety nine percent of your time is just surviving. Is the logistics and the yeah. you know, the heat, the malaria, the the you know where where there's people around, the habitats have been heavily degraded, and it's not the best for finding animals, and so. You know, we bought a motorbike and we would just go bush. You know, sometimes people would jump out of the bush and wave a machete at you, tell you to stop. I had my missus on the back and, you know, rape is a thing and, like, it's a yeah. thing. Often they'll cut down trees across the road to create roadblocks. We I speak in Indonesian, um, so that really helped, um, yep. I think. And, yeah, I mean, it's it's... You, you do far less herping than you would like just because you're, you're spending most of your time surviving. You know, if you yep. if you plan a trip into the Southern Highlands, you might, you know, spend 10 days getting there and back and five days actually walking around. And by the end of it, you're, you're totally stuffed. You've been eating rice and eggs the whole time and, you know, that's it. Yeah, oh man, I can it, it makes it an awesome experience, but it's just yeah. not, it's not like just dropping down and doing a month yeah. in the scrub, finding awesome snakes every night. It's you know, and anyone who's done a long, you know, long field stints, it's that's just how it is. It's, it's logistics and the people that can, I guess, you know, hack it and, and hold out for long enough, get lucky enough to see the, the cool stuff every once in a while because you don't see it every day. Yeah, that's right. Um, did you come across many white lip pythons at all? Or? Yeah, a couple of hundred. I'll just go back and look at the paper, but I think a couple of hundred. Um, yep. Yeah, they're, they're fairly common in good habitat. We found both the southern one and the northern one. We wrote a paper on that, I think, last year, splitting them. 
Yeah. Or actually lumping them because another guy described six species, but there are only two. And um, not hoser. And um, yeah, so yeah, cool animal, sort of analogous to a water python, you know? Yeah. I know, you know, look, you, know you, you look at the Northern Territory and you find water pythons in swamps, kind of where you'd expect, but it's a bit more akin to Queensland, um, the, water, the white pythons. We're in Queensland, just in the rainforest, quite far from water, you can find water pythons and they're just, you know, chilling on land, eating mammals predominantly, you know, and the, the white-lit pythons are, are basically the same. Sort of, I'd, I'd call them semi-aquatic, but, um, yeah. but they don't actually need that much water. You know, it's not like they're swimming around like an arafurophile snake the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Um... So, with what was I going to say? Well, so with the white lip pythons, are they? They're not found in the mainland of Australia, are they? No, and, I, and, I, and in my opinion, um, which is only an opinion, but perhaps informed, um, I don't think they occur in any islands in the Torres Strait either. And I yes. say that because there haven't really been any authentic records. Yeah. Um, We've spent a lot of time on the southern coast of New Guinea and white-lip pythons don't occur on the southern coast of New Guinea either, at least in the places I've been, and that's that transfly, dry sclerophyll forest, you know, the typical like Darwin or Cape York tropical woodland. So they, yeah. they are, you know, tied to rainforest, these animals, these white-lip pythons, and, um, and, and that, you know, you need to go... There's a bit of rainforest on the Oriomo Plateau on the, the sort of the southern mouth of the Fly River in PNG, um, but at least on the Indonesian side, a lot around Moorhead and so on, where Boigu and Saibai kind of are, um, which are our northernmost islands in the Torres Strait, it's the habitat's unsuitable. You, you almost need to go 50 to 100 kilometres north before you get into even marginal white-lipped python habitat. And yeah snake and reptile traders that have been operating there for 30 years catching these things for a living never found them close to the coast um yeah, yeah. so that's not to say that historically they weren't and now they're well they were and now that they're you know on some of those islands it would be it's impossible to prove absence for the probability of one you know yeah and so so yeah I, it would be a an awesome thing if they were but yep. um, I wouldn't put my money on it, let's put it that way. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Yeah, because I see they're obviously on, on a lot of the licenses in, in Australia as well, and there's obviously a few in captivity. Yeah. A few people have bred them. So, um, but, yeah, I, was, I wasn't too sure whether they were on the islands or if they or they weren't or not. So Yeah, but, and the other thing is a lot of the ones in captivity are blatantly the northern species. So yes. if people are saying, yeah, this is a southern white Australian python, it's like, why is it gold with a big yeah. black head? <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the same as the B-Axe and everything, the Sorongs that are all exactly. floating around Australia as well. So exactly. did you ever keep much yourself or do you keep anything yourself? Or Yeah, I mean, I, I have on and off over the years kept, I won't say most things, you know, scrubs, screens, spotted python, you know, all, all I don't think I've kept any colubrids or, or lapids. I mean, I've kept them in field stations and things for yeah. short periods, but when I, when I was at uni in Sydney, yeah, I had had a bunch of pythons, but I must admit, 
I mean, as much as I love them, I do, I guess if I didn't do the job that I do and wasn't lucky enough, spoiled enough to see them so often in the wild, then maybe I'd be more into the, the captive scene. But, yeah. you know, when you, when you travel so much as well, you know how it is. It's difficult enough with two bloody kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, so when you're working, say, on, like, basically anything and you're taking DNA samples, what's it like? basically working in the field with reptiles have you got like a group a big group of people with you or are you doing most of it yourself or or anything like that i mean it's it, it depends it's basically just me um and then you know early in my career i would get mates to come along like a mate would come for two weeks or three weeks and so i might yep. spend the six months there and just have rotations and i have some periods alone other periods with mates these days I mean, New Guinea. I did with my my, my then girlfriend, um, and yeah, they, these days I kind of just employ. Like, I do a lot with the governments themselves, um, yeah. and so and you know, to work in a place like Indonesia these days with the permitting and the blah blah blah, it's it's easier just to work with with government or, or by yourself. Or, or I, to be honest, don't do a lot of the work myself anymore i mean i'm not i'm not a lot of the stuff you see me well if you are seeing what's being published is from data from quite a few years ago but yeah i did yeah. myself these days you know for the last five six years i basically just employ people to to run projects i sort of set, set the projects up you know do the experimental design and go in every now and then and catch snakes for fun but they're they're kind of run by by other people Yep. Yeah. No, that's um. Yeah, I've always been pretty intrigued in the whole uh, study of wild reptiles, but being trade in lack of time, I don't have time to do anything like that or tag along or anything like that. So yeah, for sure. I need to come up to Cairns and we can we can take a week and go bush. Yeah, well, me and Luke are definitely planning on heading up that way to try and find some green tree pythons to photograph. So that's on our on our list, hopefully for next year if covid seems to oh yeah COVID. Yep. bugger off so oh, we'll give, us a, give us a bell when, when you do yeah no i definitely will so definitely will you got any so one question i wanted to ask yeah one thing i wanted to ask so with the work that you've done with say the um wildlife trade in new guinea have you ever looked at if it's sustainable for wildlife trade in australia I mean, un undoubtedly, it, it will be. I mean, yep. like from, from, a, from a, a biological perspective, from a, a wildlife management perspective, it is possible to have a harvest of any species on Earth. You, know, you, yep. can, you can have a harvest of critically endangered black rhinoceros, and it, it really just depends on how many individuals you're taking and over what time frame. If you've got 10 rhino left on Earth, you can have a sustainable offtake from a population of 10 rhino. It just might be one old bull male every 60 years. So it's like, who's, who's going to do it, right? Um, and so, yeah, reptiles, especially as, as ectotherms, they can achieve biomass that is far greater than endotherms, i.e. wool-blooded you know, birds and mammals. Um, they typically occur in, in very high abundance in the landscape unless they're sort of range-restricted endemics. The vast majority of Australian species can withstand an offtake. Um, 
Yeah. Um, you know, look at how many shingle backs. You know, you see papers, you probably don't follow, but papers coming out at the moment where, you know, because shingle backs are fairly coveted overseas and can fetch a good a good dime. And, um, and you know, so I think a couple of hundred animals have been seized by customs over the last, you know, 10 years or something. And a paper came out recently saying, oh, it was a conservation catastrophe and, you know, we need to really worry about it and clamp down on it. And it's like, what? I mean, call a spade a spade, guys. Like, you know, even the scientists are sensationalising things these days. Yes, yeah. it shouldn't be happening. It's against the law. The Australian people and the government have spoken. They don't want to trade their natural resources. That's completely fine. Just don't pretend that it's having any sort of impact whatsoever relative to the number that get killed by cats. Exactly. On the roads every fucking day. It's you know. Yeah. And I must admit, from a just a pragmatic perspective, you think of cockatoos. I mean, some poor German bastard will be busted with you know five cockatoo eggs and little sleeves and their things by customs, and we'll spend a million dollars of taxpayers' money prosecuting them through the courts. And yet you have another department shooting forty five thousand of the damn things in Victoria every year because they're considered pests. And you're like. What? Where's the yeah. senseless? And you know, again, it, it's it's choices. I don't have strong opinions whether we should be or shouldn't be trading our natural resources. I, you know, there, there are definitely some some cons or some negatives to to, to doing so. Um, yeah, it's just you know, if every country makes its own decision. Australia is you know, considered that its its wildlife is exceptionally unique. I guess the the irony is that it's getting out anyway. People yeah. are bringing up overseas, and they're the ones making money from Australian natural resources, where Australia gets nothing. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, the, the debate will rage on, no doubt. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, I think it'll just stay the same, unfortunately. And you know, if they did it right, things would get you know done properly, rather than shoved in a sock or in a suitcase or yeah. however. It, makes its way over there seems to be a portal from australia to germany somewhere or something like that you always hear on on npr exactly i mean there's a there's a there's fault on both sides you know government government many of these parks and wildlife and rangers and if any parks and wildlife rangers are listening to this forgive me but often because i'm sure you're not like this but many of them you know sea keepers and hobbyists is sort of hardcore criminals who will do anything to commodify wildlife and just want to make a buck and the reality is that's just not true for the majority of people they're really conscientious animal lovers that would never want to see these animals um, go extinct in the wild etc etc but then on the other side you do get the greatest respect your piece of shit hobbyists who will go out and you know flip over every rock on a, on a sandstone outcrop take every single animal they see and they are in it for the money, and they, they really do give the rest of the hobby a, a bad name. And so, you know, there needs to be some sort of reconciliation or, or understanding there that, you know, there's, I think it could be done, as you say, and it could be done very well. I'm, I'm far less supportive. You know, I, I don't think Australia needs exotics. You know, I don't think yeah, definitely. Condors or boa constrictors in here. I mean, the the risk of I know they're already all through through the country, but I don't think we need to formalise and open up a trade in those species. Just you know, look at the Burmese python example. 
in the, or the cane toad even the cane toad we don't need to take the risk we have so many stunning beautiful animals in our own country but, but i am a believer in in you know i wouldn't be where i where i am today if i wasn't able to do a few you know, illegal things like handle a python off the road when i was a kid now technically that's that's a that's a, a state offense exactly. and and you know, is that the sort of message you're trying to you're trying to instill in young people that are the next generation of, of of conservationists? And you know, you look at all the psychological and social malaise that's happening now. I'm a firm believer that our disconnect from the natural world is a real problem. And this is this yeah. is one way that we can engage with our, our natural heritage, our natural resources, and the beautiful the beautiful species that we have. And so I'm a big proponent you know again all these caveats when it's done well when it's well regulated etc etc you don't want a free-for-all but it's yeah. it can be done well and i believe it can i'm, I'm a big believer in, in in natives for pets yeah yeah i i agree to be honest yeah. but um i mean if it's like you said if it's all done right it's, i don't see an issue with it but you know, that's that's me. The organisations that don't agree with that. So it's an age-old argument, right? Like you know, even if you didn't take from wild populations, but you had the opportunity for you know hobbyists such as ourselves to be able to produce captive red babies and then send them legally overseas, government can tax whatever the hell they want out of it. You know, like it's just one of those ways that it would be awesome to be able to make the hobby go that little bit further and the animals get right out of the country in the right way no exactly exactly i mean if 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 you have a, a burgeoning illegal trade and you know about it and you are essentially powerless to prevent it then you should have a rational conversation about just legalizing it because knowledge, yeah. knowledge knowledge is power for a regulator they can know how many animals are going out they can levy and tax the the exports, such that that money can go back into the into the government coffers. I mean, you know, I, <laughs> I think it probably for them falls into the too hard basket. And, yeah, and they just, you know, there there is, in my opinion, because I work in Africa, Latin America, all over the world on conservation issues. Again, with the greatest respect, but I think Australians do have quite a narrow a view of what conservation is. It seems to be a sort of let's lock it up in a national park, not let anyone sort of access it or touch it you can't walk off the park that's a felony you can't touch this that's a felony don't pick up that leaf that's biological natural resources here's a thousand dollar fine type thing and it's like, well kind of the parks are publicly owned i don't know it's a yeah it's a it's a tricky one but it was so brought down by the fucking nitwits that you get lighting fires in parks and exactly. parks and taking animals willy-nilly from parks and so you know, it's just it's one of those things that in, until there's some sort of mutual understanding and mutual respect, then it's it's probably not going to go anywhere. Yeah. And um, Luke's, Luke's a little bit of a monitor nut too. He, he sent me a question before about um, he wants to know have you done have you done any work with Australian monitors or or anything like that? Water monitors or mangrove monitors or? Yeah, I mean we put a paper, just a small paper out. We we. A couple of animals have since turned up in the Queensland Museum, but we found Varanus dorianus, the blue-tailed monitor, in northern Australia. Um, yeah. At the tip of Cape York, I saw a bunch of animals, so pulled them out of the 
the stomach of a black-headed python. I found them fighting in the forest. We got camera tracks of them. We, yeah, so, yeah, it's, um, that was quite cool to get this sort of first natural history data on, on that species and, and an idea of its distribution in, in Cape York, actually more widely distributed than you think from the McElrath ranges all the way up to the tip of Cape York. Yeah. suitable habitat and you know they look so wow. similar to, to mangrove to indicus mangrove monitor that you know it's, it's it's no wonder people didn't didn't recognize the two but i guess because we'd spent a lot of time in new guinea where there's lots of them seeing both indicus and orianus when you when you've you know again you've seen a lot of animals you see them in the scrub and it's like there's only one thing that is so uh yeah that, that's been fun otherwise you know i've i've Worked with, with friends and colleagues on other projects. Most of my monitor work has been in, in New Guinea and with Varana Salvatore, the Asian water monitor in, in Asia. Not, not so much in Australia, actually. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. You still lagging a bit there, Luke, or are you good? You tell me. I'm hearing you yeah, guys perfectly fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're still lagging a little bit there because you were just sitting there nodding when I was talking to you, so... <laughs> um but yeah do you got any you got any questions luke that you want to shoot through or i do but i don't know if i'm going to be lagging too far behind to ruin a podcast so i don't really want to do that to you guys um but i did have a bit of a question about uh i'm not sure if you guys touched on it at all but whether or not you found greens um sitting on eggs in the wild and wh- what they were kind of doing like were they how, how were they nesting and where were they kind of nesting in in their habitat yeah, we, we did cover that fairly extensively, so perhaps it's best okay. to, to, to listen back. But just to, just to, to recap a bit of a summary, on the ground, I found, found eggs, egg shells in a hollow log, um, but otherwise really, really young juveniles, a day old, in sort of wait a while, tree fall gaps, I assume, well, very strongly assume mum was wrapped around the eggs on the ground somewhere, and then I've seen... I think two, maybe three animals in, in Biak in, in northern New Guinea that were curled up, all, all in sort of low fern. So long story short, on the ground. Awesome stuff. And nothing nothing right, particularly well, special in terms of you know, where they, nothing particularly special in terms of, you know, microhabitat or like you could just take a big clump of ferns and they could just, you know, there's one just there or there or, or anywhere. Oh, I'd appreciate awesome that answer to his question. He's just he's just happy because he's got his female sitting on eggs now. So I think that was one of his main questions, I'm pretty <laughs> sure. So yeah. um, are you working on anything else at the moment or are you just kind of um in Australia uh, I mean I've still got <laughs> still got piles and piles of data and papers to write from, yeah. from the Australian system in Cape York. Most of my work now is 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 on wildlife trade. More like I work on tigers and rhino horn and elephant yeah. ivory and a whole bunch of stuff. And it's more sort of policy oriented. I also run an NGO called People for Wildlife. We buy up land around the world and set it aside for conservation purposes, like in Africa and Latin America and yeah. and and so on. And um, yeah, uh, I, do, I do a lot of work these days with the reptile skin trade. Yeah. Um, you know, reticulated pythons, water monitors, crocs, 
um, that are that are killed and traded for their, their meat, skin, and medicinal value, but have, have a lot to do with sort of the the United Nations that's interested in that, and also you know, big French or Italian luxury brands like Gucci and so on that, that buy the skins. We sort of assist them to make sure it's sustainable and well managed, and you know the animal welfare is top notch and all that sort of thing. And um, and the answer is yes to all those all those questions. It's 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 a great trade in my opinion that provides a lot of benefits to a lot of a lot of uh, you know very impoverished people that don't have many other ways of making a cash income. And um, and so that gets me in the field. Like for example, I've cut open about fifteen thousand reticulated pythons over the last however many years. Wow. Huge numbers of water monitors and blood pythons and you know, mass water snakes and all sorts of cobras and all sorts of shit. And, um, yeah, so that's fun because I, I like looking. You, you learn so much about an animal from looking inside it. You know, what's, how recently did it reproduce, what its clutch size was, um, are they sexually mature at the size, blah, blah, blah. What are they eating? And so there's, you know, there's, there's huge amounts of data. And so through all those projects, I get to answer some some pretty cool ecological and biological questions still. So, yeah. Yep. No, that's unreal. Did you want to throw out any, like, to your organisation, any any um, website pages or anything like that? Or no, not, not 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 really. Most of the most of the stuff I do is pretty pretty low key and just yep. kind, of, kind of like to keep a low profile and post a few that's things great. on Instagram. And I most of those photos are more than a decade old. I need to get yep. some, some new material, but um. I thought, God, I've taken all these bloody things. I might as well show yeah, exactly. you <laughs> just sit on my hard drive otherwise. Yeah, that's right. No, that's exactly right. All right, mate. Well, we might let you go. So thanks heaps for your time. Um, yeah, it was no, great having a chat with you. So we'll have no, to um, – well, keep, keep up all the good work, you guys. And, and Luke, best of luck with that girl. Um, don't screw it up. Um, no, 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 no pressure. <laughs> I think he's thinking of doing maternal incubation, aren't you, Luke? <laughs> <laughs> so, no, well, you'll have anyway. to update me and let me know how that goes. I hope, that, hope it all works out for you. I'm sure he Thank will. You. I'm sure there'll be posts all over social media. So, very good. All right, lads. All right. Hey, no way. You take care of yourselves, and I'll catch you when you're up here in Cairns. We'll go out for a beer and a, and a green python hunt. Sounds good, mate. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. Cheers. Later, lads. See you, mate. Bye. Oh, I'm perfectly good, mate. So, why don't I just, as I start talking, I'm just going to throw the outro right out there so you can sit back and just hit the exit button when we're done because this technical difficulty night <laughs> sounds has been good. Absolute hell. So, guys, we'd like to say a massive thank you to Eric and Owen and the NPR crew for having us and uh, if you'd like to contact them it's best to find them at moreliapythonradio.net and email them at info at moreliapythonradio.net as far as contacting us in our social media platforms you can email us at australianherpticulture at gmail.com you can find us also on facebook and instagram as well make sure to check us out on teespring store for more of our merch we've got that everywhere over there and that's on our facebook page to see more of what Jason is doing, make sure to follow him on Facebook and Instagram at The Gecko Effect. And for myself, you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and Teespring under Beach of Scaly Beasts. We hope to have you back next week for another episode of the Australian Hepticulture Podcast. Good night, guys. Good night, guys. Good night, guys.